0: I was calling out Russia's efforts to undermine democracy and, and the international system before it was cool to do so, I think.
1: Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicles political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicles senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we're talking to Ambassador Dan Baer. Now, he's running for the Senate, the U.S. Senate in Colorado. And if he's elected, he will become the first openly gay man to be elected to the Senate in the history of the United States. So we talked to him about his time growing up in Colorado, and we talked to him about being an openly gay ambassador, which was, there are not too many of those. The Russians were deeply suspicious of him. He has a lot of good stories for that. Stay tuned to listen to Dan Baer on It's All Political, next. Ambassador Dan Baer, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to the city of St. Francis, San Francisco.
0: Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So you are uh, running for the U.S. Senate in Colorado. That's a seat uh, currently held by uh, Senator Cory Gardner. He's a Republican guy. And uh, you're running about, what, how many other Democrats are in the Like 10? Uh, At last count, I think that might be right, yeah. Uh, 10 other Democrats in the primary. But if you were elected, you would be the first openly gay man to be elected to the U.S. Senate. And uh, now we, we know Colorado now is a purple state, uh, you know, was, but uh, for LGBT folks uh, of a certain vintage and you're 42, it was known as the hate state uh, back in the day. Uh, a lot of anti-gay legislation back there. I found that there's a poll done in 1992 where two thirds of the people in Colorado didn't even know a gay person. Did you ever hear that?
0: They obviously thought they didn't know a they gay th- person, yes, you know. Yes, key, um, key to that one. Most people who, who say they don't know a gay person just don't know that they know a gay person.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, you said you grew up in a place, uh, Littleton, Colorado. It was a suburb, well-to-do suburb of, of Denver that, quote, wasn't yet hospitable to LGBT uh, people. And, and that was a, a good high school. What was it like for you 25 years ago going to high school there? Why wasn't it, how, how wasn't it hospitable
0: to gay folks? Well, I I mean, I wasn't out at the time. uh, And so, uh, but I certainly had a sense that it wasn't possible for me to be out. uh, And that has changed. I know that the school now has a gay-straight alliance or an ally group. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I remember very well when Amendment 2 passed. I was uh, 15 years old, uh, sophomore in in high school. And while I wasn't yet sure what was going on inside me, I had a sense of being different. Mm -hmm. uh, And I had a sense that this was a... A public condemnation of who I thought I might be, uh, and um, you know that that I think one of the things you learn about laws, especially as a diplomat, one of the things I saw around the world is that laws have a pedagogical effect; they have a teaching effect. And when I would travel the world for Secretary Clinton or Secretary Kerry, and I'd meet with uh, the justice minister or the foreign ministry minister in some country. Uh, in Africa or Asia, and they would say, yes, we have this law in the books that that bans homosexuality, but we never enforce it anymore. You know, I, obviously it's good that they don't enforce it, but it still teaches people that, that that is something that they ought to be ashamed of, that they can't be welcomed, that they can't live a public life. And, you know, as a 15-year-old in Colorado, the idea that I would, uh, frankly, you know, just 16, 17 years later, join the State Department as a senior official and uh, th- And 20 years later, 21 years later, be uh, the fourth openly gay U.S. ambassador was completely unthinkable to me. Uh, And I think one of the things that inspires me today is just the idea that uh, the life that I've led has been one that has only been made possible by others who have invested their efforts as activists, as political leaders, as lawyers in driving political change that made it possible for a young queer kid somewhere in America today to... Uh, see a much different future than the one that I could see from the vantage point of 1992, and somebody who's lived the life that I've led can't afford to be cynical about the possibility for progress. What
1: kept you going in those days what What was your what was your light at, the, at when at that time?
0: There were a lot of times when there wasn't a lot of light. Um, uh, the answer is a lot of the time it was fear that kept me going. Uh, you know, fear of fear of being rejected, fear of uh, being left out. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that made me work really, really hard in school when I was in my teens and frankly through college was the thought that as long as I performed well enough in school, I would at least have some basis to say to people, you should, you should accept me for this because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm performing well at the things you're telling me to perform well. at. So, you know, I think for most people, you know, coming out stories are all different, but for most of us, there's an enormous amount of pain and uh, and difficulty that people carry with them for some period of their life. And the hope is that you can when you do come out and it is liberating and to be yourself and bring your whole self to work or to your family life, et cetera, that you can take the pain that you went through and turn it into a sense of empathy for others who are left out and left behind. So what did give us your coming out story? What is your coming out story? I'm an unusual coming out story because I actually told my parents that I was not sure about my sexuality before I told friends, which most of my friends, it's the other way around. Uh, My coming out was also affected by the fact that when I was in my early 20s, my father uh, got cancer and uh, and passed away at age 54. And I Mm. was the oldest of four kids. Still am the oldest of four kids. And you were how old at that time? Uh, I was 24 when he was diagnosed and, uh, he, uh, he passed away a year later, Mm um, uh, 24 and a half 25 around my mid twenties. But my youngest sibling was seven when my father died. And, uh, so I, I kind of checked out of living my own life for a while at that point. Uh, and then when I, when I moved back to the U.S., I was in graduate school in in the U.K. And when I moved back to the U.S., I kind of made a purposeful decision that I was going to um, start my life back at home uh, as myself. And mm. uh, and I'm grateful that I. So this
1: a couple of years later when he came back. So yeah, you went to Harvard Rhodes Scholar. You're, when you say study overseas, you, I was you, a Marshall Scholar. Yeah, yes, um, Marshall Scholar overseas. Yeah. Um, and so then you went on to, you taught at Georgetown, you were in think tanks, and then uh, worked for the Obama campaign. And then uh, he, he went into the State Department. And uh, and then you were appointed the uh, ambassador to the um, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the US. OSCE. Tell us a little bit what that's all about.
0: Sure. So I had worked for Secretary Clinton for the first uh, four years of the Obama administration in the Human Rights Bureau in Washington, D.C. and covering Africa, Asia, as well as multilateral institutions. So the U.N. Human Rights Council, the U.N. OSCE is also a multilateral institution. So the OSCE grew out of the Cold War, and it was originally a kind of meeting place for East and West where the Soviets and the Americans and their respective uh, allies and partners could come together. And the idea was to prevent, I mean, it was one of the diplomatic efforts to prevent conflict between uh, two nuclear armed powers uh, and conflict in Europe. Once the Berlin Wall fell and Eastern Europe was uh Liberated from communism and there was a big effort to integrate Eastern Europe the Eastern European countries into the International system and the OSC ended up playing an important role in training judges and helping build ministries of Democratic states uh, and helping helping those countries become part of the whole Mm -hmm. and it remains very active today So when I went to post in in 2013 uh, September of 2013 I had no idea what was awaiting me, but uh, three months later People in Ukraine started protesting against uh, their then presidents uh, kowtowing to Putin and turning away from Europe and a revolution followed and there was a new government in Ukraine and the Russians invaded and seized Crimea, which they continue to illegally occupy today Mm -hmm. and invaded in eastern Ukraine. And so all of a sudden. I was negotiating agreements to send international monitors in to report on the conflict. We were uh, every week uh, having often multiple sessions of uh, what's called the Permanent Council, where all 57 ambassadors sit around a formal room and debate the issues of the day. And uh, we were really in the thick of things. And I think I was the only U.S. official during that time when we were really challenged by putin's aggression uh in ukraine i was the only u.s official who had a weekly meeting standing meeting with my russian counterpart so oftentimes i was you know having that meeting and rushing back to my mission to send back classified cables on what i was hearing from him not because i trusted that he was giving me the whole truth and nothing but the truth but what he was telling (laughs) me could could indicate something about what they were interested in. Uh, uh, and so I was actively reporting back to Washington. So it was an interesting time.
1: And you did not, uh, uh, Putin wanted you eventually expelled from the country, correct? Or yes. The... There
0: was, there was one incident where, uh, uh, after we had these debates every week and the Russians would say more and more outrageous and, uh, false things denying that they were in Ukraine, uh, you know, denying everything that they were doing. And, uh, I the Russians didn't like me because I was always tough coming back on them and pointing out where they're exposing their lies. And uh, at one point, I said that the Russians were playing a gangster's game of, you know, Watch the red not the black trying to distract people from what was going on on the ground and uh, the next week Putin's foreign ministry put out a statement saying that they had nothing more to say to me and that I was uh, rude and 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 shouldn't be uh, a diplomat i the the Russians also were deeply the Russian diplomats that I interacted with some of them were also deeply homophobic which I could use to my advantage because to the extent that it made i wasn't uncomfortable by their homophobia but they were uncomfortable with my being gay and so i could use that to my advantage when i was jousting with them and they accused me of uh 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 non-traditional diplomatic intercourse which Whoa. which which was a play on words because they had just barred they had just passed an anti-gay law that used a a different version of that and and so i managed to use that to my advantage and how do how you use that to your advantage diplomatically because you, you throw like... you throw it back at them and and you say yeah you know i mean uh i'm not a traditional diplomat uh and and by the way, any traditional diplomat would tell you that lying every day when you come into this room to your colleagues is the most disrespectful thing you could possibly do. And part of what you're doing is not just speaking to them, you're speaking to the room and reminding people that when the Russian ambassador comes in every day and tells us bald-faced lies, he is not actually uh, doing anything that, that deserves our respect and in fact showing disrespect to all of us. Uh, and I think part of what what was important was being a strong American voice to help um, to help lead to help lead the group of uh, of other ambassadors and help us put pressure on the russians to stop their violations of international uh, law and and stand up for 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 international rules if
1: you were to go to washington what insights from your time there could you uh give us about the russians continued efforts to to screw with our democracy so, what did you get any i mean this I'm sure you, I don't know if you got any hints of that then, but did you, this was, I'm guessing not surprising to you based sure. on what
0: you saw. No, it wasn't surprising. I mean, I, I, I was calling out Russia's efforts to undermine democracy and, and the international system before it was cool to do so. I think, <laughs> um, but, uh, if only we had listened, uh, well, no, that's not what I mean, but I <laughs> just, uh, I was, I, I had an up, up front seat to what they were trying to do right. in their neighbor and, and it was not surprising, you know, Putin has has an objective of undermining the rule of law uh, democratic systems, not because he has some kind of peculiar, you know, religious commitment to undermining democracy, but because it's a, it's a direct challenge to his stranglehold on what is a gangster state where he has extracted billions upon billions of dollars over recent decades uh, from the Russian people. And any, any, International progress on democracy and human rights is a direct threat to him because if the Russian people were to live in a state that had accountability, that had rule of law, that had justice, Vladimir Putin couldn't be the leader of that state. And so that is why he was threatened by a democratic revolution in Ukraine. It wasn't because he was trying to help an old friend, it was because that's a direct challenge to him. And I think, you know, certainly Putin saw the opportunity to undermine. Our 2016 election as an opportunity to reduce the pressure that would be on him from an America that was strong and leading in the world. And I think one of the things that President Trump and the administration have failed to do is to deliver serious consequences for the growing list of ways in which we now know that the russians interfered in our elections and well i think the investigations of the president that are proceeding in congress based on the findings of the Mueller report need to proceed i think we also shouldn't take our eye off the ball that we have another election coming up uh in 18 months and we have not taken enough steps to defend our democratic process and to mete out consequences to those who have tampered what, with what it What
1: should we have done or should we do uh
0: in terms of consequences to the russians uh in terms of consequences of the Russians, there's, there's room to ramp up sanctions on, on, on individuals and entities that were, uh, that were involved. Obviously, Congress has had to intercede several times because the Trump administration has been unwilling to implement the sanctions that even Congress has called for. Uh, there should be a strategy. And one of the challenges that we have right now is that President Trump's foreign policy seems to be all reflex and no brain uh, there's a bunch of knee-jerk reactions uh, around the world without coherent strategies that would actually accomplish diplomatic objectives. And when I talk to voters in Colorado, obviously most voters, as you know, um, don't spend—you know—their their mental space is occupied with their lives and right. making their lives better. So they don't spend a lot of time thinking about what the diplomatic strategy should be vis-a-vis yeah. North no, Korea. No, nobody cares. Iran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they do understand that the world being unsafe and chaotic out there is, is something that makes them less comfortable at home. And they want to see a restoration of the kind of coherent, solid, strategic engagement with the world. And one of the things I'm surprised by, frankly, that I hear is uh, people will come up to me after an event. They'll say, the thing that I, that I like most about you is that you're a diplomat. Both because I think we mean, we need more diplomats in Congress, but also because I think we need people who have a sense of what America's role could be and should be in the world, and how to how to work with other countries to solve the international challenges we face.
1: I want to get to some of your your stands on, on the issues, but I, there's a couple of things I want to just uh, touch base with you on about your experiences overseas and and, and being a gay man. Um, you said, remember you uh, the Russian ambassador had been uh, the British ambassador told you that. Uh, The Russians would go around for weeks. There's this new American ambassador. He's a homosexual, and he's 36. They were freaked out by your uh, not only that you're gay, but that you're a young gay man. And then when you uh, met with the uh, representatives of the Holy See, the Vatican, um, they read Bible verses to you. So what's what's that all about?
0: Yeah, you know, trying to help you out. It was. uh, I'm sure. I'm. uh, I will. I will give him the Monseigneur the benefit of the doubt, and assume that he was only being loving. Um, <laughs> but look, you know, I mean... I laugh as a Catholic. <laughs> go ahead. Um, I The point, people used to say, what, what's it like to be a gay ambassador? And I would say "It's it be, the fact that I'm gay is neither here nor there in terms of my being an ambassador. What matters is that I'm the American ambassador and, yes. and that that is a role that I take very seriously and, um, that I think comes with a special responsibility because of the role the United States can play in the world, which is not to say that I don't recognize the significance of the fact that when I graduated from high school in 1995, I couldn't have gotten a top secret security clearance and that, you know, explain, explain why because, uh, well, you could still be fired, uh, in the nineties for being gay from the federal government and, uh, security clearances, were certainly not available to people who were uh who were closeted um because of concerns around blackmail but even if you were openly gay which should remove the blackmail yes uh, opportunity um y- you were not allowed to have a security clearance and so you know there was enormous progress made i didn't when when i found out that the russian ambassador had been going around saying oh the new american is a homosexual and he's 36 um, uh, you know by the like way, it's a terrible I, Russian accent, like, by the way. like I said. Oh, it was pretty close to Andre. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, uh, so he, he, the muttering was more than the accent, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, he would, you know, that didn't that didn't phase me because I knew that I was the American ambassador, and uh-huh. frankly, whether he wanted to or not, I was the person that he was going to deal with. And I think, you know, for actually, for every kind of story of somebody feeling awkward about that, there were a lot of beautiful stories. I mean, the day after the shooting at uh, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, which was a really um, moving and and difficult thing as an American representing our country overseas. You feel both the tragedy of the loss of your your fellow Americans, but also you have to explain this to people um, and people want to know, you know, how are you feeling and how does this happen and that kind of thing. And we had a formal meeting of the Permanent Council uh, that week and uh, the Canadian ambassador spoke up and she said, you know, when, when i when I first heard the news, my first thoughts were of my brother who lives in New York, and of Dan and Brian, m- hmm. my American colleague and and his husband. And I think that it's good that other ambassadors around the table yeah. that that was what they heard. Isabel say was her first reaction upon hearing that news, and it, and I think when I spoke about how it made me feel as a gay man to know that a place that was, you know, gay, gay clubs are are a place of safety, are supposed to be a place of safety for, for a population that has faced enormous physical violence and continues to face enormous physical violence. And those were largely LGBTQ people of color who were, who were killed there. And talking about when we put human rights in an international context, talking about what it feels like to feel safe enough to be who you are It had special weight and so i think there were times where it was actually really important that i was
1: and again it's humanizing it goes back to the colorado stat stat, about two-thirds of people don't know someone or that they that they know is gay um and you got married overseas in austria when it wasn't legal to be married there, how do you, how do you pull that off?
0: So we we pulled it off by actually doing the documentation in Washington D.C., okay. and then we actually didn't even tell our mothers. Uh, and <laughs> and so, so it's kind of an elope. And so we did the marriage ceremony uh, in Vienna in our backyard, and we were married by a friend who had been the special representative for mon- uh, special envoy for monitoring and combating anti-Semitism, who is herself, uh, a, she is a rabbi. And when I saw Tim Snyder, who's a, a Ukraine uh, expert and an academic at Yale, when I saw him uh, in Ukraine a, a few months later, he asked me about my wedding and I, I told him and he said, you know, two men getting married by a female rabbi in Vienna. That is tactful, yet unambiguous in the message it sends. <laughs> and I decided right then and there that like being tactful and unambiguous is is a good way to go through life.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's like a, that's a great uh, motto. Um, so let's talk about uh oh and after you left the state department did you leave uh were you uh did you quit or were you fired uh, when i was the, when the i was
0: f- fired uh the trump transition team uh first sent a a message asking for a resignation about i think 9 a.m on november 9th so we had <laughs> less than 12 hours of uh to let to let what had happened sink in and it was a re- it was a crazy time i you know um uh actually on november 8th or in the middle of the night on november 8th my husband turned to me and said look the values that we care most about are are most under threat in terms of the future of the world they're most seriously under threat at home and we need to be home at, and be part of our community and figure out how to be on the fight for making good things happen
1: so let's talk about how uh, how your plan is to make some of those good things happen uh i'm then we're going to speak broadly in terms of the, some of the issues that resonate across the country on on healthcare you are many folks uh, certainly in the progressive end of the spectrum for medicare for all you're not you're not quite there tell us about where you are on on medicare for all well
0: i i have said and i know healthcare. that what when this plays people are going to write to you and say oh that's that's not his idea but i will note that it's in a interview from before last week um I, i've said that i'm for Medicare for all who need it or Medicare for all who want it, which is a way of saying that like a public option when we have a when we have a system where there are people who don't have coverage or don't have access to affordable coverage. And we have a huge portion of Americans who either through their union or through their employers do have coverage. And I'm not saying that that is like the the, the system that we have is the system we ought to have. But if you're tr- trying to take a medical term, if you're going to triage and focus your attention on the places where need is greatest you should focus your attention on uh the the places where people don't have it or don't have uh affordable coverage and you know there are two uh um progressive women in the in congress who have put forward uh, a plan called medicare for america a piece of legislation called medicare for america that is a kind of that could be seen as a starting point obviously nothing gets through congress without negotiation but it could be seen as a starting point for the kind of negotiation over a, a plan that would give medicare expand medicare first to all who need it who to all who need it now uh, and then i would I would imagine that that would be the first step in 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 addressing
1: but you don't want to see you don't want to disrupt everyone's health care as you I think of you said in the past uh, many union folks uh, have uh, have great plans themselves many of them have Cadillac plans as they were called back in the day uh, and you don't want to disrupt the system is why why take away health care from plans from people who like them and they're they're and they're very good
0: when I when I talk to people what I hear from folks is that they would like uh, including those who have coverage through their union or employer, they would, they understand that nobody in America, we are a rich enough country that nobody in America should be bankrupted or not be able to, to get the care that they need. Uh, but they, they think it makes sense to start with those who don't have it, who don't have affordable care. And that makes sense to me. And I think as you look at what has happened in the politics of healthcare in the last decade, we made enormous progress with the ACA, uh, Obviously, we made progress in terms of the number of people covered and and uh, expansion uh, of coverage. But we also made progress in the American people's minds. Uh, People now recognize that the U.S. government has a role to play in ensuring that everybody be covered. And I think we should take that progress that we've made and build on it and 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 fulfill the promise of having everybody be covered with. Uh, affordable care, and we should work on driving down the costs, which I think if we start this this way with Medicare for all who need it, we will also, uh, in doing so, help drive down the costs uh, of, of coverage because that's another real issue for a lot of people.
1: And uh, you live in one of the most beautiful states in the union, one of my favorite states, um, and, uh, and the environment's very important. The but you are not for the Green New Deal again. That's sort of an aspirational
0: thing. But
1: what what is your what are the challenges you have with that?
0: Oh, I, I, I the only challenge I would say that I have is that uh, it's a, it is an umbrella term. The policies under which have not been fully laid out yet. And so I absolutely recognize that we need to see a dramatic transformation in our economy. And I think uh, in order to to make it sustainable and in order to avoid Leaving our children a dying planet. Uh, My husband is a climate economist for the World Bank. He works uh, every day on how to protect poor people from the effects of of climate change. This is something that we talk about at the dinner table. Uh, It's it is certainly and obviously in Colorado. You know the ski industry as well as our tourism industry more broadly is a huge chunk of our economy Mm -hmm. and. Uh, is very susceptible to the the changes of climate change. So this is an important economic issue for us. I, I think there's no question that what we need is going to be a set of, uh, of, of solutions. It's not going to be one piece of legislation. It's going to be a, a set of legislation in the w- same way that the original New Deal was not just one piece of legislation, but referred to a package of legislation. And the ideas should be both as ambitious as the original New Deal, as well as uh, focused uh, not just on uh, on, on traditional environmental issues, but also on the question of how we're going to make this an economic opportunity for America. America at our best deals with huge challenges by finding in them opportunities to score economic victories. And I think that, that the challenge of climate change is one where we can do that, too.
1: All right. Ambassador Dan Baer,
0: thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate right.
1: it. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Ambassador Bear for coming to visit us here in San Francisco. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you're a gay ambassador or a Russian dictator, it's all political. It's All Political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at SanFranciscoChronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.